I am Anthony Fowler. I'm Will Howell. And I'm Viola Giuda. And this is not another politics podcast. So, friends, stock market is crashing. My retirement is shrinking. So you can only imagine how angry I was when I read this article in the New York Times a few weeks ago about how the members of Congress seem to be trading on insider information. Former congressman among several people hit with insider trading charges today. Prosecutors and other federal officials unveiled the indictments in New York. They accused the defendants of making millions of dollars off the transactions. They seem to be trading, buying and selling stocks uh, that are somehow either under investigation by their committees or that are subject to some regulatory uh, measures that uh, the U.S. Congress is contemplating. The current rules around members of Congress trading stocks are incredibly lax. And in a very rare show of bipartisanship, several bills have been introduced to address this problem with sponsors on both sides of the aisle. I mean, the notion that elected officials would use the information that they're privy to in order to enrich themselves in their own private lives is really troubling. It's also something that's attracting a fair measure of outrage among a number of oversight groups. So for instance, the POGO, for the Project on, on Government Oversight in Washington, D.C., and they would like to see an, you know, an outright ban on this kind of behavior for fear that it's going to unleash all kinds of corruption and lead to you know, even greater public disaffection with government because they're just disgusted with these, you know, these political elites enriching themselves. But, but look, that's all about by way of perception. There's the empirical fact itself about whether or not there's, we have any evidence that systematically this is something that's actually done. That is that members of Congress are trading stocks in ways that enrich themselves. Um, Anthony, you talked to somebody who looked specifically at that issue. I did. I spoke with our colleague Andy Eggers uh, here from the University of Chicago. We've had him on the show before, and he has a really interesting paper on exactly this topic. He and Jens Heinmüller have looked at the trading behavior, the stock trading behavior of members of Congress. And, you know, one finding is that on net, members of Congress aren't disproportionately beating the market. They're not, you know, they're not doing much better than if you just kind of bought, you know, put money in an index fund. But when they invest within their district, they are beating the market. And so there's potentially some, you know, kind of a mixed bag of evidence, but some interesting evidence that maybe maybe there's something weird going on, but but it's being kind of counteracted by, by, by other things going on as well. So uh, I talked to him about the paper. We had a really interesting conversation. It was it was uh, it was fun. And uh, and I hope I hope our listeners enjoy it. So tell me a little about the motivation for this paper. You're interested in whether or not members of Congress, you know, beat the market in their in their stock trading. Why is that? Why is that something worth investigating? Uh, our main motivation was that there was there seemed to be a widespread perception that there was a lot of lucrative trading going on in Congress, but a lot of that was based on kind of anecdotal stuff. So being young and foolish, we started trying to look at this more systematically. We Instead of just looking at uh, trades, we tried to like kind of reconstruct the whole portfolio and see how how members were doing on average. The paper that we're talking about today is not the first paper on this topic, and it wasn't even the first paper of you and, and Jens on this topic. So tell us tell us for a minute about the previous paper that kind of motivated this paper. So in the first paper, Jens and I did a review of previous work on congressional stock trading. So previous work had looked at like are trades well timed 
a lot of this stuff seemed to be sort of cherry-picked. The, t- the t- incredible timing of, of members of Congress was really over- overstated in the previous research and especially in media coverage of the previous research. And then looking at the whole portfolio, so not just the trades, but kind of reconstructing, well, what did they hold at any particular point in time and how did that compare to like the market as a whole or like a passive index fund? We showed that on average, members of Congress really w- would have been better off in the period we were investigating, which was the 2004-2008 period. They would have been better off investing in a, in a passive index fund. That on, on average, members of Congress underperformed the market. And it was true for like all kinds of subsets, to powerful member, members, less powerful members, senior members, junior members, etc. That was what the first paper did. But so there's all these colorful anecdotes suggesting that these members of Congress are trading based on you know quasi-insider information and benefiting from it and so forth. And yet on average, they're not actually beating the market. So what might explain that? And what, what motivated you to, to write this next paper? One explanation would, would be that members of Congress are just like a lot of people. <laughs> they, they think they know something that the market doesn't, and they engage in, in trading um, without a real information advantage, um, and maybe with some kind of behavioral biases that make investors uh, not do well when they're, when they're sort of um, you know, amateur investors messing around in the market. So things like uh, not wanting to sell something when it's, when it's had a loss, panicking when the market starts to go down. So it could be that they're, they're just normal, they're just idiots like the rest of us, basically. Another possibility with members of Congress is like, well, maybe their investments have a political color to them. So maybe they, you know, for example, maybe they invest in companies in their district in order to kind of show their devotion or, um, you know, show their loyalty to local companies. And maybe those investments are kind of politically motivated and, and therefore not really financially very, uh, very savvy. So the first set of analyses you conduct is just a question of, of where members of Congress are investing. Are they actually investing disproportionately in companies where they seem to have some kind of important political connection? How do you go about answering that question? We compare the, the weight of a particular firm in a particular member's portfolio to the weight of that firm in the, in the market. And we see if a member is likely to overweight that firm if the firm is local to the member. So meaning like the, the headquarters of the firm are in the member's district. If the firm's PAC contributed to that member's uh, campaign. Another one we look at is whether the firm could be considered to be kind of regulated or over- overseen by committees that the member sits on. Like Coca-Cola is going to have a relatively big uh, weight in a lot of people's portfolios because it's, it's a big firm, it's a big part of the S&P 500 or whatever, but does it have, especially have a large weight in the portfolios of like the member who represents Atlanta or, or a member who's on a committee that's overseeing Food and Drug Administration um, or members who receive um, contributions from Coca-Cola's PAC? So you find pretty big uh, differences there. You find that they're much more likely to invest in firms relative to the market. They're much more likely to invest in firms that are in their district, that contributed money to their campaigns. There's maybe slightly more likely, although this is not, not, not as clear, that to, to invest in firms that they're regulating. These are not just, you know, these, these don't look like purely innocent investments. These aren't, it's not, they're not just investing in, you know, an index fund here. They are prioritizing firms that they have some connection with. And as you say in the paper, I guess that could go one of two ways. It could be that they're doing that for kind of almost like a favor to this firm that is, is helping them out. If they're doing it for political reasons, or it could be because they're actually profiting from these, from these investments. That, that's, that's right. But there's, there's also another possibility, which is that they're just investing in what they're familiar with, which is, which is something that a lot of investors do. And, and it's t- generally not viewed as a very good strategy for an investor. If, you, if it's kind of like, oh, you know, I, 
I see a lot of signs for, you know, like Ford, um, <laughs> like, and, and so I'm going to invest in Ford. Like that's that's generally not enough information to be something like the market would would be missing out on. You know, so the familiarity that people would have with firms in their district or or firms that give them money, you wouldn't necessarily expect that to be something that would be lucrative to a member. And you do show that the local bias for them is greater than for other private investors, that they're doing this much more. And it could be because they just happen, they're the member of Congress, they're aware of all the local companies and so forth. So it need not be for some kind of nefarious reason, but, uh, but this is a very strong local bias that they have. So are they profiting from these local investments? Yeah, their local investments do better than the rest of their portfolios. Um, and I think they do, by some measures, they do a little bit better than market too. So that makes us think that this is not just um, this like pure familiarity thing, that maybe there really is some information in, in their investments in local companies. It could be that these members know the, lo- the management of local firms. They're able to figure out which ones are good. So it could be just an information advantage. It could be the, sort of the other way around where the, the firms, where the member knows which firms can be helped by the government, which would be a little bit more ethically problematic, I, I think, right? Where, you know, the, the firms are coming to the member for help and the member is able to kind of find out whether the government can help them before the firm does. That would be another possibility there. Okay, so the members of Congress, they're beating the market on their local investments within their district, but they're not beating the market overall. So that must be the case. They're actually losing to the market on all their other, their non-local investments. Yeah, that's right. And, and yeah, I mean, as you say, not only are they beating the market in their local investments by a little bit, but also they are, they're overweighting local investments in their portfolio. So, you, so that's a good start. You know, the rest of their investments do poorly enough and have a big enough share that on average they're, they're at or below uh, the market performance. So let's talk about that for a second. Why are they beating the market on these local investments? You obviously, maybe you can't, you can't say for sure, but you have a bunch of tests that kind of speak to different explanations. So I think the most interesting test here is to look at the trades because the member is trading on some information that's not public but is sort of timely and politically relevant. It's a real thing to be to be worried about. Let's say like a member is in a kind of closed door committee hearing and gets some information about what's going to what's going to happen with regulation and then, you know, calls their broker on the way out of the meeting and says like buy this or sell this whatever. I think we don't really want members to be doing that kind of thing. I think um, it, for it's at the very least, it's kind of a distraction. It do, it seems like an abuse of public office, public trust, and it is indeed like illegal. And, and arguably, it was illegal before the Stock Act of 2012, but um, it's certainly clearly not legal after that. You could also be concerned about like the local firm or otherwise connected firm passing information to the member as sort of in lieu of a, a, a contribution. So I, I, want, I want favors from you. I'm going to pass information to you. And sometimes that would be legally insider trading. Sometimes it could be borderline. But, any, but either way, if, even if it wasn't exactly insider trading, but it was some kind of information that they, that they had that wasn't yet t- fully integrated into the markets and, and uh, they passed it to, to a member and then the member trades on it, you might be concerned about that. So I guess, so one thing we were interested in is, is it t- kind of timing of trades with these local firms that is the, the sort of profitable thing about, about members' local investments. So we look at the trades and basically you're, you're looking at whether if somebody buys a stock in a firm at time zero, you're interested in whether that firm outperforms the market in the next several days, next, in, the, in the period following, following the, the buy. You, might, you would think conversely that the, you would look at the sales and like does, does the firm underperform the market in the days after the sale? And that's, that's the kind of thing that, that we looked at. And we didn't really find any evidence that these trades on local firms were, um, were beating the market on average. It, that suggests that it's not this kind of like 
time-sensitive information. So what that leaves, I mean, the main explanation that leaves is something like, instead, members of Congress know about local, the firms that are in their district. They, they know about them from interactions with them in fundraising, in dealing with regulatory matters. They learn things that are more of a sort of more general quality. Maybe it's about lo- the quality of local management or the or the nature of their of their plans that are um, presumably not sort of specifically time sensitive. I suppose it's a little bit reassuring. I mean, it leaves some scope for things that you might be concerned about ethically. And of course, you could be thinking members shouldn't be involved in this kind of thing at all. And I'm I'm very sympathetic to that position. But at least it sort of seems like the most ethically concerning stuff is not the main story about members doing well with investing in firms that are in their districts. So I, I think I mostly agree with that. I mean, you've, you've, the timing analysis is interesting, and you've ruled out the most nefarious form of, like, the, the CEO calls the member of Congress and says, hey, we're just about to release some report that looks good. Today's the day to buy, or we're going to get raided tomorrow because we've been cooking the books, or whatever. You know, like, that's the kind of thing that clearly that's not go that's not that's not explaining their 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 excess returns but it could be other kinds of similarly nefarious things it's like hey it's not public yet but you know we've got this new great product that we're launching and the tests look really good and so forth and that's going to come out in the in the shareholder meeting in a month or something but we're you know what I mean I mean it could be some longer term thing that it still kind of is insider information that still is somewhat nefarious and corrupt that's exactly right. So you're right that you, just because it's not kind of the trade happens and then the stock goes up or down right afterwards, it doesn't mean that there is you know no exchange of information that we would be concerned about. You're absolutely right about that. You also you, you have these other interesting results too. You show that you show that there's not a big difference between bigger and smaller firms. You show there's not a big difference between higher profile, more powerful members of Congress and you know and relative rookies. Those are those are somewhat surprising as well. I guess those, those rule out other plausible explanations you might have. Yeah, that's right. So, the, like, a more powerful member would know more about what's going to happen in the future. So you might think that if that's the channel, you would see particularly good performance among more powerful members. If it's about digging up information about firms, like the quality of the management, you might you might think that that's more likely to be the explanation for the local performance if if we're thinking about smaller firms you know so it's like if 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 coca-cola is headquartered in your district it's not like you you know you've you've uncovered like a a star ceo who nobody knows about because ceo because coca-cola is going to get a lot of coverage but we don't see uh differences there either i mean this this whole project was it, it was kind of interesting because you know it was this process of over and over again kind of thinking about well what what are some what are some stories that would explain this puzzling phenomenon and then sort of trying to think about, well, what, what do we have any leverage by, by subsetting or um, either the, on the member side or the investment side? Like if it were this big story, if it was this kind of corrupt trading, uh, corrupt uh, passing of like timely insider information stuff, what would, you, what would you expect to see? If it was like uncovering information about local firm quality, what would you expect to see? And just over and over again, kind of trying to say like, are the good returns uh, focused in the part of the in, in the subset of the of the portfolio where you would expect to see it if it were the case that you know just doing this over and over again with this we can at least talk about on average what what, what sort of what sort of explains the the good performance in in local investments or the bad performance overall and in trying to make these little subsets and and and, and comparing that to what we would expect what we expect if it if the world were if it were all about these insider trades or, or pass, passing of political information. We can sort of get get some leverage on this and try to try to learn something about where these uh, where these patterns come from. 
I guess my, my, my toughest question for you is going to be, I mean, do you think, is it, should we worry that this is a false positive? Your previous argument about the literature was a lot of these results are cherry-picked. Should I also worry that this just happens to be one of those cherry-picked results, that you do enough tests, you look at enough time periods, you look at enough possible interactions, and it turns out that the in-district thing is where you get, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I think so. Absolutely, we should worry about that. I mean, you know, there's some reassurance that comes from, oh, I don't know, I mean, uh, yeah, I think you should always be concerned about that. And I think it's particularly, you know, this this project was really interesting for, for me. It was, one, it was an early, like, you know, I, was, I started working on it while I was still doing a PhD. All, all throughout this project, I was aware that we would be more rewarded for, have, for finding some outsized, perf, you know, investment performance for members of Congress. Like that that was what, that was the, re, the result that would be most interesting to certainly to the media. I mean, in dealing with the media, it was very clear that that's, that's the only thing anyone is interested in ha having, us, having us tell them was that we had found something about, you know, members of Congress um, beating the market. It, I think it's harder for investigative journalists. journalists. Like if you, if you put in, if, you, if your editor let, lets you spend six months digging around in the disclosure forms and you come back with like a, well, you know, they're, they're slightly, they would be better in an index fund you're not going to get to do that kind of work uh, much longer. And I think that's, re that's really tough. And you feel that when you're talking to reporters who want to want to engage with the academic research. It's like, it's just not that interesting to them to have a story that's about averages. And all, but also in, in, in the academic publishing game, unfortunately, you, you had the sense that like it was, it was going to be more interesting if we found, it would, it would make sense to people more and it would be more interesting to people if we found something that resembled a kind of expose in the in the New York Times or something where you know members of Congress are are, are doing uh, really well and I, I think at some point I it was clear that overall they weren't and and that was so that was our, our first paper on this and that that finding was it was depressing a little bit to see how little the media was interested in that compared to how they how much they were interested in the books that talked about anecdotes of insider trading and stuff I found I just I found that really demore, demoralizing and demotivating from the standpoint of like, well, you know, like I want to do research that particip that would help participate in, in public conversations. It just, se it seemed like, I suppose I, it made me think that, you know, re researchers really have to have a strong grounding in kind of both research methods so that they kind of, that they are always being pulled by what the right way is to do stuff and also kind of a, a, a grounding in, in kind of ethics and a desire to maintain a really strong reputation for doing um, ethical and principled work. And in this paper, you know, we, we mentioned the fact that these local investments do well, but I, it wasn't something we were, you know, by, by this point, I think we were really deliberate about not, you know, not, not sort of leading with that. If the paper is not about kind of like, oh my God, you know, we could have written this paper in a way that would be like, oh, members of Congress are, are, are beating the market in their local investments. That's like, that's the headline. And instead it was like, we really wanted to emphasize that it's like, no, they're not beating the market overall. Can we, can we, can we dis, you know, diagnose to what extent that's a political phenomenon or not a political phenomenon? So yes, it's possible that the, the, the differences that we do find in making all these comparisons, some of these differences could be spurious. What I'm trying to say is like that um, I, was, I was really aware in doing this paper about how much you could, among the various spurious findings you have, you could emphasize the ones that are appealing to your audience. And here it was very clear that the, the, the findings that would be appealing, appealing to our audience was unfortunately like members of Congress are corrupt. So we were very studious in like trying to not, not um, 
emphasize that more than we thought was necessary. But of course, in any study, you can get you can get false positives. Would you would you bet your own money on it? If suppose there was a fund that tracked the within district investments of all members of Congress and tried in real time to mimic those trades, would you would you put your retirement account in that fund? I probably wouldn't. I think there's this is changing all the time, and I think for good reason. Like a lot of members have realized that it's it's like a silly thing for them to be trading individual stocks. Um, probably silly anyway, um, but even when they have some information, it just, it, like they can't, you know, the financial benefits uh, seem small relative to the reputational costs that they could be paying. And I think also, you know, like, I mean, you'd have to pay someone to do all the work to, uh, to track these things. And, and so those fees would eat up uh, probably whatever benefits would be. There. So yeah, I'm, I'm not about to, I'm not about to pursue this. <laughs> It's disappointing. This was this was going to be our money making scheme here. We were going to we were going to go off into the sunset and start a hedge fund. Okay, so so Anthony, super interesting. Lots of findings, um, but also lots of data. Can just can you summarize for us like what exactly was Andy looking at in this paper? What were the data that he he was drawing upon? Um, and then what are the high-level findings um, that, that he, he presents in the paper? The members of Congress, if they are actively trading on the stock market, they have to disclose those trades. So they have to, you know, they can choose to put their money in a blind trust if they want to, but if they themselves are involved in trading stocks, they have to, they have to share that information with the public. And so they were able to go get all those, you know, those quarterly reports about all the stock holdings of members of Congress, including all the trades they made and when they made them and the amounts of those trades and so forth. And, and they look between the years between 2004 and 2008. So in the back of our mind, that's the, those are the Congresses they're thinking about. That's the, those are the, the bets that they're making. I actually looked at a different paper also to supplement my sort of knowledge of what's happening. So, so this paper is by Belmont Sasserdot. Segalan and Van Hoek, and it's from 2020. And basically what they do is that they, they repeat a, a similar analysis, not they don't slice and dice the data the way Andy does, so they can't talk about um, the many issues that Andy raises, but they basically repeat this uh, basic analysis of looking at stock returns, but they look at from 2012 uh, till 2020. And again, they find negative returns, and then they, they, they do something interesting that was on my mind when I was reading Andy's paper. They look at the best performers because I would say, well, maybe on average, a member of Congress is not trading so much. So they actually are not very, you know, this is not their bread and butter. So they are not really doing so well. But those very sophisticated ones who are trading millions of dollars, perhaps they are uh, abusing all this information and power. So they check. And even those who are doing the best, they are not doing so, so well. And then they look at those who are being investigated for insider training. And if anything, it seems like they are doing worse than an average congressperson. And I guess, I mean, I was sort of struck right out of the gate that so many members of Congress are making these trades that you can do a, a blind trust. And I would have thought most were doing that. It turns out they've got, they're able to track for those four years, the trading behavior of 422 members of Congress. And who's got the time? I mean, some of these people, so, some people making hundreds of buys and sells over the course of, you know, even a quarter, like it's a, 
It's remarkable. <laughs> like, they'll, they'll, aren't they? Don't they have important jobs? These people. <laughs> but that does does that. I mean, some of these. I mean, so if we do look at that top end, there are some of these people who do almost look like day traders. It's not a lot. It's not you know. But it, there are there are cases like that. Is that the kind of thing that you're especially worried about? They're like in the middle of a committee hearing, and they hear that some and they run and they make <laughs> every four days a trade is being made on average by them. Yeah, hold on. <laughs> Oh, so this is a lot of information and it's hard to wrap your head around. So so can we start with this question that I think the New York Times article raised in my mind? To what extent can we say there is some inappropriate behavior? So do we believe those findings that they have that it seems to be that they get quite a bit of uh, excess return on their local investments, the investments that they are connected to via the fact that they are in Congress, and how do we think about that vis-a-vis the additional investigation that that the authors did when they tried to see is it true that if you are a more powerful committee member, then you actually benefit more, uh, or is it true that when you that that you are really timing your uh, trades um, to to the information that you receive from committees? So, 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 how are you thinking about that? There are. A couple of stories that one could tell, and they investigate these stories in the paper. One is that legislators have private information about the companies within their districts and states, that they are putting that knowledge to good use for their own personal enrichment. And and that seems troubling. There's a more benign story, which is about how you just sort of invest in the companies that you know, the ones that you've heard about. And you're more likely to have heard about, frankly, companies that have a presence in this districts and states within which you work and live. And that doesn't seem quite so troubling. And so how do we distinguish between them? Um, There are three findings that kind of put the initial concern that you might have at some ease. So they don't find any evidence that investments in big companies yield larger returns than investments in small companies. And you might think that, well, the big companies are the ones about which you would have more knowledge or more engagement given where you sit in Congress. They don't find much in terms of the timing of these trades, right? That is that there's some direct link that the returns that you get are linked. There's a temporal quality to them that we might say is evidence of them using private information, putting it to good use in order to get a big windfall on any particular day. And then they also don't find evidence that... Pause. What was that? There was a third one that they did. They did big, small. Oh, so so one other story that they I think entertain, which I think is an important story in political science, is that if I invest in your stock because you support me, I'm actually going to change the way I rule or the way I push your, uh, you know. Um, ideas through committees and so on in your favor. So the reason why I have excess returns is because I've made you a better company. That I have an investment in Boeing and now I'm sitting on a committee where I have to decide the fate of Boeing uh, after all those crashes. And I'm just going to be more lenient on Boeing because I have this stock. Yeah, I would say that's a more troubling story, wouldn't you? I mean, the, the story of insider trading is like, okay, that's dishonest. You're kind of essentially taking some money from other traders, basically. But this story is like, no, I'm actually distorting the policies that we're making in Congress because I'm thinking about my own stock portfolio. Yeah. That normatively does seem more troubling. Perhaps I agree with you that it's more disturbing, but perhaps it's a little bit less likely likely ex-ante because it's easier for me to change my trades 
based on the information I have about how we are going to proceed in Congress to maximize you know, the overall well-being of our citizens, it, it, it's easier than me, the short policy making to benefit the companies that I currently hold, given that it's so easy to unload the stock that you have. I, I think it's, it's a less likely story example. Nevertheless, I think it was interesting that they tried to adjudicate. And I don't know how, do you, how, how you feel about whether they actually uh, adjudicated whether the story is true or not. So what they look at is whether more powerful Congress people make higher excess returns and the story would be that the more powerful I am, the more able I am to distort policymaking to benefit the companies that I own. And they do not find anything. If anything, they seem to find a negative uh, effect. I guess I'm not sure that really distinguishes between the stories, because you might also think the powerful members of Congress have more information. They're, they're privy to all the backroom secret meetings where they're getting access to more insider information, too. So... I think that's a surprising result for any of the stories that the more powerful members aren't benefiting more. So, so I think I agree with you that, that looking at the most powerful members of Congress is interesting for both stories. But I think it's also easy to tell a story for why we shouldn't find an effect for exactly those members. But you, because you could think that being more powerful in Congress on average means being more visible and having more to lose because you're already, you know, you have this incumbency advantage, people will recognize your name, and then you might be a little bit more worried about using your power to either distort your investment or distort your policymaking. No, but the story that most easily can uh, explain the finding is one that is rather benign, which is simply that legislators are making investments in companies from the home districts and, and, and states with which they have some familiarity. That explains the result. It's not about people investing more or getting a big portion, disproportionate amount of their returns from big companies or from the subset of legislators who are in positions of real power. So I, I am struggling with this a little bit. So yes, on the other hand, I think this is the idea that the authors are settling on saying that perhaps yeah, I just make those extra returns because I invest in something that's familiar to me, so I'm better at making decisions. But they document that this distortion towards uh, local investments is actually much larger than the distortion that an average investor has. So there seems to be something more going on. Like you and I also have more information, perhaps about companies that are located close to us, and we also distort our portfolios in that direction, but, but to the lesser extent. And probably we are making less money on that. <laughs> so you're saying, just saying familiarity isn't enough of a story. We need to supplement it with something like, mm, I'm running for public office. I feel an obligation to invest locally to a greater extent than does an otherwise comparable, a person with comparable wealth. I don't know, because if that was an explanation, then we would expect that there would be some negative excess return associated with that. So I'm investing in those companies because they are local, despite the fact that they are not the best stocks, because I want to signal my you know, allegiance to my, to my local community. So I find it very puzzling that we do see those excess returns on those local, invest local investments, on those investments that are associated with my uh, committee activity, uh, on those investments that are associated with the super PACs that uh, uh, donated money to me. But despite all that, once we start slicing and dicing the data, we can't find the smoking gun. Hey, if you're getting a lot out of the 
research that we discuss on this show, there's another University of Chicago podcast network show that you should check out. It's called Capital Isn't. Capital Isn't uses the latest economic thinking to zero in on the ways that capitalism is, and more often than not isn't, working today. From the debate over how to distribute a vaccine to the morality of a wealth tax, capitalism clearly explains how capitalism can go wrong and what we can do about it. Listen to Capitalism, part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. What do you guys make of the hugely negative return, <laughs> but the unbelievably poor negative. performance outside of, right, they're just getting fleeced outside of their districts and states. I think that calls out for some explanation as 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 well. I think I think that really that really requires a lot of explanation. So let me quote uh, some numbers from the paper, which I found amazing. Uh, the authors ran this thought experiment, and they said, "Let's take a hundred dollars and invest a hundred dollars in two thousand and four. And if you invested in S and P five hundred." In 2008, you are going to have $80, okay? This was a period of time where stocks were not doing great. If you take the same $100 but invest it in the congressional portfolio of local stocks, then you are going to get $97. So you're doing much better. But if you invest in the congressional congressional portfolio of non-local stocks, then you get only $65. Those are huge differences. And if you think about the 65, that's really bad compared to the market portfolio. So I think they are doing pretty poorly. Yeah, they should have just put it under their mattress. That's what's clear. Yeah, I, d- I don't have an explanation. I mean, I, I mean, this is outside of our area of expertise, obviously. I mean, if you, you know, here at Chicago, we talk a lot about the efficient market hypothesis. And if, in fact, these markets are close to efficient, then... There shouldn't be a strategy that allows you to either significantly beat or lose to the market, either one, because because these are all equilibrium prices. And so even if you were like a really bad behavioral person, you would you still wouldn't lose a lot to the market. But uh, but obviously people have big fights about this. It's outside of our area. But for the people who don't believe in efficient markets, they think they think people have all these behavioral reasons why they do a bad job on the market. They over respond to trends. They, you know, they seem to be. Uh, buying at the peaks and you know and selling at the troughs more than they should and so forth and so i so again i mean i don't have any strong story but like it could just be that like members of congress are just like other people most of the time except when they have inside information from these in-district firms of course the thing that's unsatisfying about all these stories is if the, if there's a known way to lose money on the market there's also a known way to make a bunch of money on the market. Like there should be hedge funds that specialize in these behavioral biases that people have so that they can anticipate them and do the opposite. You know, you know what I mean? Like they can just short the long positions of the Congress people. I think that's the winning, yes. <laughs> that seems yes. to be a winning strategy. Yes. <laughs> so I, I, I agree with, you know, what you're saying that this is not our area of expertise, but on the other hand, it is. What's what's our area of expertise is the politicians and the political selection. And I think this story is actually an interesting story about political uh, about about political selection. It, you know, one coherent story to my mind is that members of Congress are trying to somehow abuse their position when they are trading, either using side information or not, because they seem to be doing better on those trades that are somehow uh, related to their job. 
outside of that, they don't seem to be so smart. And of course, there's a caveat there. The paper does not compare their performance to a performance of an average individual investor who decides to trade on their own. But on the other hand, an average individual investor probably is not trading on their own. They are just uh, investing in Vanguard and S&P 500. So I don't know. It seems like we, we our representatives are not so smart. Oh, they're doing something. They're up to something. You know, one story that, that would reconcile all some of these observations is that they do try to abuse their power. They do get these pieces of information of information that seem valuable, but they really lack uh, ability or skill to translate this information into good decisions. And that's actually, again, a very sad story for us when we think about not only the abuse of power, but also about what kind of representatives we have. Yeah, that's that's concerning to me. I think whether or not they actually get rich seems to be not so relevant for how we assess them and how we think about them and how concerned we are. Because if it turns out that they're spending all of their time trying to abuse their power and get rich, even if they don't, that's still pretty concerning. That still suggests that they might be willing to do all kinds of bad things um, that aren't in the interest of the public with the goal of getting rich, even if it turns out they're not good at it. It's an interesting notion. I mean, it, is, it sort of turns the headline, like these people are trying to get rich, but boy, they're awful at it. Now now update <laughs> your views about these people. But if they all- They're corrupt and powers, they're incompetent, yes, both. That, that's, like, that's it's even worse than we thought. Tell. Yes. <laughs> and, and of course you might think that your investment uh, abilities are are orthogonal to whatever we would like the you know Congress people have in Congress, but, I, I, you know, maybe they are not. And then that's really informative for us. So I have a question for the two of you, which is um, uh, neither about the specific empirical findings on offer in this paper, nor about the kind of high level ethical obligations of legislators to behave one way or another, but rather about perceptions of impropriety. So one story that one might tell is we should shut down all trading activity on the part of legislators or just require that they put all their money in blind trusts because the mere perception that there might be something wrong and the occasional story that comes out is sufficiently damaging to the public trust that we need to make sure this doesn't happen. Now, the downside of that could be that if you require all legislators to put their money in blind trust, that that has impacts on who's willing to you know sign up for the job you have higher quality people maybe on average will be less willing to run for congress something like that but um how much weight do you guys want to put on these concerns about perception which can be understood as informed by but also apart from actual empirical empirical facts about legislative behavior when it comes to trading i i would put enormous weight so i read this article in the new york times and i got really angry and, you know, I was lucky enough to notice this one paragraph, uh, follow up, we have this podcast, we read the paper, we talk, you know, we have the author here across the street. And, and you know, that calmed me down. But but I think, I think it's so easy to undermine trust in Congress by finding exactly this kind of situations where someone is connected to the company that they actually sold uh, or bought. I thought about the unintended consequences of forcing everyone into a blind trust, but I can't see so many. So after all, I think that, you know, most of Congress people are actually not trading enormous amount of money. So it's not that 
forcing them to put this money in blind trust is going to really affect their well-being so much that this is going to affect whether they run for Congress or not. And the richest ones, I bet they they have uh, professional uh, wealth managers. <laughs> so like, I don't think they are really trading themselves. And there are a few who are. We saw those 400 trades a year. And, and those are the ones that I think we should be worried about the most. So I would be all in favor of, of a blind trust requirement. I'd be fine going further and saying like, you can't make any other outside income while you're a member of Congress. Like, why don't we, why don't we make their salaries higher? Why don't we double their salaries? But then say, you know, outside income and no corporate boards after you've been a member of Congress for at least 10 years or something, you know, like there's some, this is an important position and you give up some of your personal, you know, personal profiteering rights to take on this public service job, but it pays very well. But but no, you, you can't spend all of your time trying to trying to enrich yourself in other ways. I'm sympathetic to all that, but I, I'd like to add one, which is that if we're going to do this kind of behavior, I mean, this sort of put these restrictions in, and limitations on what legislators to do are going to do, I think we also should turn our attention to the press itself. And I'm not suggesting that there be regulations and whatnot, but it strikes me as deeply irresponsible for the media to go out and to stir up stories about possible malfeasance without grappling with basic research on what general trends are. So that in the New York Times article that you read, Viola, there was one paragraph buried at the end that said, well, boy, the careful study didn't show very much. But everything else is tantalizing. Everything else is about, oh, can't you see the awfulness? It's right there. That's really problematic when you think about I mean, it's, it's like catnip to, to, to journalists to, to talk about the scandal and the corruption because careers are made by unearthing individual malfeasance. But I don't know, if you're going to write an article on this, you got to cite Andy's paper or engage in, right? Engage, it put some attention to what the evidence shows about the basic patterns of legislative behavior. Yeah, I agree with that. I was really disturbed by this article and and I see a, you know a value in writing this article because of what we just said. We think that that there's still value of uh, changing the regulation of imposing this blind trust requirement because there will be always someone who will notice these patterns and talk about them and the perception of Congress is going to be altered. Uh, and also, uh, you know, who knows, maybe right now uh, those Congress people that we have right now in Congress are not able to exploit the fact that they can use private information, but that might change in the future. So so there's a value to articles like that, but I really wish it was a little bit more balanced and uh, from the start said, you know, it seems like Congress people are not doing super well on average, but here are these particular examples that are egregious and that might, you know, raise issue of, of perception and maybe we should have regulation and, and maybe talk a little bit about what are the benefits, what are the costs of regulation like this. As sure, you know, it wouldn't, wouldn't be such a well-read article. It wouldn't be tweeted all the time by people. But I think it would be better in the long run. Anthony, now it's your turn to... You've been unbelievable. <laughs> you have to say nothing about... The, this is your jam. It's been the right there to New be York picked Times. up. <laughs> yes. Yes, I think, yeah, I mean, it's not just the New York Times, obviously. <laughs> I mean, it's, I think it's, 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 you know, it's, it's journalists and it's, uh, and it's scientists. And, and, you know, I think, of course, like this is, this is precisely an area where you worry a lot about kind of 
sensationalist reporting, both by the scientists and by the journalists and so forth. Of course, the paper that says, you know, it turns out there's not a whole lot going on here is not nearly as likely to be published in a top journal or make a big splash as the paper that says, look, here's, some, here's something really bad going on. Now, not to say, I mean, I think the job of the journalist is different than the job of the, of the researcher. I think it's okay for journalists, like an investigative journalist should be going around and saying, hey, here's the case of a member of Congress who happened to make a, a you know, suspicious trade right on the same day that they had a meeting with so-and-so, and then they ended up making $200,000 off of this. You know, like, I think that's, journalists should be doing that. That might not be great science because it's easy to kind of cherry pick and find a clear case like that. And so the scientists should then look at the, the cases that were cherry picked by the investigative journalists and then think about how can we do a broader study and figure out if this is really a, a systemic problem. So I think it's, you know, we should give the journalists some credit and they're partly doing their jobs, but they also, they should look at the evidence and they should be honest about what the evidence says. Yeah, I guess... Did I, did I, did I, did I, did I, did I, I think you can choose because what you're saying is go ahead and say the sensational thing, say the outrageous thing, as long as you subsequently say, but there was a study that suggests otherwise. Now it may be that the sensational thing is actually a real thing. Like that is there, if, if you can show that this one trade really was based upon, um, which is um, why, which is why I don't want to discourage them from doing that. I, yeah. I think we don't know. That, that's, that's fine. But then it's incumbent upon the journalist to show as much, to bury the kind of careful research that has been done about what's happening on average uh, is, is not okay. And I'll say this is all relevant to what we were saying earlier insofar as if perceptions matter. Well, perceptions are shaped much more so by the way that public conversations are informed by journalists than they are by scholarship. But here we are at Not Another Public Podcast trying to make a difference, right? That is trying to lift up the scholarship and put that front and center. At least they did put it in, which is good. They could have not. I mean, <laughs> I've seen cases where they <laughs> yeah, just did there's it, always, right? said, there's always to uh, a way to fall, you know. <laughs> right, right. I mean, I've, I've had conversations with journalists. I've had hour-long conversations <laughs> with journalists where I gave them 20 studies and, and they didn't cite any of those studies. So, so it could be worse. <laughs> But, but yes, <laughs> be grateful for the, you know, the, the the skinny paragraph you have. Oh, this is we can keep going. We can go all day long with this. Yes, <laughs> yes. So, what's your bottom line? <laughs> well, I'm left in this kind of middling state because I at once feel kind of assuaged by worries, but also they, you know, they haven't again. They haven't evaporated. I think there's some really interesting findings in this paper. And they point to some things that could be potentially concerning, but to the extent that they follow up on it, we don't find much evidence that there's kind of, as you, as you put it earlier, Viola, there's no smoking gun in this paper that says, ah, there it is. And yet, and yet we see them doing well. We see legislators doing well when they make local investments and when they make investments in companies and industries where they have, uh, where they're, they're getting, where they're getting money. But the, but the, the end, the, the final picture is complicated. It's like, and, and so we're left with a lot of lingering questions. I was really grateful to read the paper. Um, I think this is a space where mostly what we're told is sensationalistic. And these are some patterns or some basic facts that we have to grapple with. 
Yeah, I, I agree with everything that Will just said. I think this is. I think it's good that that Andy and Jens wrote this paper. I think this is a good thing to have done. I think the results are interesting. I think you come away thinking, okay, maybe things aren't as bad as I thought. On net, they're not actually profiting that much, but. I still also think it does kind of look like they are sometimes profiting off of their private information and maybe maybe they're influencing policy in nefarious ways and maybe they're trying to profit off of their position of power even if they're not as successful as they would like. So so I'm still left with some concerns. One thing I think would be fun to look at would be at maybe after this paper was published, if, if, if the results got around, if members of Congress start shifting, did they actually shift to even more in district, you know, uh, investments? Do they, you know, do they, do they, do they try to see, oh, it looks like we're making more money here. Let's yeah. try that. I mean, that would be some, a, a nice bit of follow up evidence that maybe they really are trying to like profit off of this and, and look at the evidence. Um, so, so I'm glad they wrote this paper and I come away somewhat concerned about, you know, about, uh, members of Congress and their private investments and the extent to which they're thinking about themselves rather than the general public. Yeah, so I'm less concerned about um, Congress people profiteering from their information and position than I was before I read this paper. So that's good. I, I agree that there's some lingering doubt on that. Um, but for me, the, the most important finding that I will really grapple with as I think about it when I fall asleep is the fact that our Congress people uh, are really doing so poorly when they are investing. And I really wonder what that means about their other abilities. <laughs> right. I hope I will never talk to any congressperson <laughs> in my life. <laughs> That's it. I closed my political career right now. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Not Another Politics Podcast. Our show is a podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy and is produced by Matt Hodap. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.